Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 130, which along with Psalms 128 and 129 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, November the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, looking today, continuing in, in Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 12 today, verses 1 to 10, in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and in the epistle to the Ephesian church, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So the setting for this um, Zechariah prophecy today has to do, most commentators think, because of the, the way the language is used, that this has to do with um, end times kind of prophecy. And so that's that's the setting for this. And it would fit in with Revelation as as the nations come against Jerusalem, and then the, ball- the uh, battle is joined out in the valley. So that that's the setting for for this prophecy today. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So we're first off beginning with who is speaking, right? It's the Lord, the one who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. It's an odd sort of a statement here, but but it's sort of a, the way to understand it is sort of a town and country designation. And the reason I say that it's odd is because Jerusalem is part of Judah. So the Judah includes Jerusalem, but there's a, a difference and a distinction being made here between the city of Jerusalem, which is where the priests and the leaders would be, and then the surrounding area, which is Judah. And, and so those people would be looked down upon by those in Jerusalem in the same way that it was in the time of Jesus that they looked down more significantly so on the people who, who would have come from Galilee and Nazareth and places like that. That's the reason. It's, it's almost a curse and a byword to suggest that the Messiah could come from a place like Nazareth. It's the reason right from the beginning there's, well, wait a minute, can anything good from, come from Nazareth? I mean, right from the start, that's Nathaniel's response. So how do we how do we work through all that? Well, the, what's going to happen here in this passage is there's going to be a siege against Jerusalem, but Jerusalem can't handle that siege itself. The deliverance is going to come from the, the people in the surrounding countryside outside of Jerusalem in Judah. So on that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it up will hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So this is the, the final battle, is the way that, that most commentators in, interpret this. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, quote, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So God, God is in the same time that he is going to repel the siege of Jerusalem. He's also going to restore the unity and the relationship of the people of Judah and the people who are in Jerusalem. So they're, they're both going to come together in this, in this time 
Why? Because they're going to see the action and the work of God. Because what he said is, is that he's going to do the work. He's going to strike the uh, horse with panic and the rider with madness. But then that's going to be ascribed by the clans of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they will devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So it, it, it's going to, he's going to use the people of Judah to put down this, this siege coming against Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So, so the, the people in Judah outside Jerusalem will see the glory of the Lord, and they will see then that the Lord doesn't favor one over the other. And there's always a tendency, right, in this whole town and country thing to, to see that, that there's an arrogance on both sides, now, the, the arrogance of the, of the city crowd tends to be that they're greater numbers and they can wield authority and control, because they, they, in our democracy at least, because they can, they can outvote people. It's the reason the Founding Fathers set up the Electoral College and set up the Senate the way that they did, to make sure there were equal representation for those places. But it doesn't mean that that division and that, that jealousy goes away. You know, there's an arrogance towards from the people in the in the country towards the people in the city who believe them to be completely immoral and blah, 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 blah. I mean, all these other things. Um, and then there's an arrogance from the people in the cities towards the people in, in, well, flyover country. And so what God's saying is, is in the day of the Lord, I'm going to heal those divisions and I'm not going to make a distinction between people who live in cities and people who live in the country. It's going to be make a division between people whether they love Jesus or whether they do not. We, we let all these other divisions consume us when, when we need to be united as one people under God. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. That would be Jesus. He's of the house of David, remember. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, who is that? That's Jesus. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So God says, I'm going to, I'm going to reverse all of this. And my people shouldn't be divided, and they shouldn't have this arrogance against one another. And so, ultimately, what's going to bring them together? What's going to bring them together is the, that they both join the battle that the Lord fights for them. And ultimately, he says, they're all going to look to me. And that is their unity, is when they all look to him. That's where unity comes from. It doesn't come from political unity or will or any of that stuff. No, it comes from a group of people who are seeking after the Lord and who don't have time for petty divisions. In the gospel today, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He, he was just going through there on his way to Jerusalem. And, and so he's already healed the blind man. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. 
He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Uh, to be a chief tax collector would mean that he, he had the entire area under his control. He would have had deputies under him who would have... Um, who would be actually responsible for collecting the taxes, and then and then they would remit to him, and then he would remit to Rome. Although it went the other way around, you had to pay it in advance. If you you bid on a territory and then you paid that amount in advance, and then it was up to you to recoup your investment plus some. And there were very few checks on those tax collectors. There was not really an appeals process. So so if you thought that. Uh, the tax collector had taken more or, or overvalued your property because it was a tax on assets and income. So if you thought they had overvalued it, you, you didn't have an, uh, an appeal process. In, in this case, because he's a chief tax collector, they could have appealed to Zacchaeus uh, in that region. But, he was, but we're told he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he's a little fella, and he, he's got to, to figure out how, who, who is this Jesus. He was seeking to see who he was. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It's a divine imperative that I stay at your house today, Zacchaeus. He has to look into the trees to see this man, and he sees him, and there's a divine appointment at work here. And so he calls him down, and he says, I have to go to your house today. And he knew him, and he called him by name. He knew who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? He's coming through here, and here we have us, these God-fearing people, and he's going to go hang out with that sinner. Well, it's interesting that, that people just describe these other people as sinners, as though, well, I'm not. So they're, they're drawing distinctions between themselves. He's not just a tax collector, and I'm not. He's also a sinner, and I'm not. But that is their summary on what's going on. Well, we might have misjudged Jesus, or, or he's an idiot, because look who he's hanging out with. He's going to hang out with the sinner, the wealthy man, the tax collector. He's just like everybody else, except for, well, he's worse. I thought this man was a religious leader. Why in the world would he be going to the home of a chief tax collector? That's, that's the reaction of the crowd. And, and Zacchaeus said, stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Listen to that offer again. Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, remember there was a rich young ruler earlier who came to Jesus and wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him, well, one thing you lack, and that's to sell everything you own and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Well, Zacchaeus doesn't wait until Jesus tells him what's required of him. He's in the presence of Jesus in the same way that Peter was in the boat 
early on in what Luke 4, when, when he has the miraculous catch of fish after Jesus teaches and then tells him to go put out into the deep water and let down his nets for a catch. And he says, well, you know, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything, but because you say so, I'll do this. And then he pulls up this great catch of fish, so great, in fact, that John and, and the others have to go and help him retrieve this enormous catch. And what does he say? Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. In the same way that Isaiah recognizes himself, woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And so Isaiah situated himself with the people. I'm just like they are. These people situate Zacchaeus in a worse place than they are because he's a sinner. And it's easy for us to fall into that mentality of determining somebody else's sins are worse than ours. But what happens here is absolutely extraordinary. He gives of half of what he sees, he promises to give half of what he has to the poor, and then also to restore fourfold. That's not even treble damages; it's quadruple damages. Uh, he is moved to repentance, and this is true repentance. He's confessing his sin. He's confessing that he has ill-gotten gain, and he's making restitution for that very thing. Now, what's interesting to me is, is that, that what's happening here is Jesus chooses this tax collector and goes to his home, and, and everybody is outraged that he does it, and yet at the end of the story, what's going to happen? Everybody is going to receive a blessing because Zacchaeus got a new heart. Everybody there now is going to have an honest tax collector. Everyone's life changed for the better, economically, because Zacchaeus' life changed. So little did they know, the greatest thing that he could do for them was to go to Zacchaeus' house this day. And Jesus told him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So he's acknowledging two things. One is that Zacchaeus is a Jew, and second thing he's acknowledging is he was lost. He needed salvation. He's restored to the people of Israel, and he's restored in a different way, and he's restored in such a way that it's going to bless everyone in that district, because Zacchaeus now is going to be an honest tax collector. It's going to change everybody's life, because Jesus called him out. We need to be careful in in the way that we measure God's goodness and what's good and what's not good. We, we need to pay attention to these things and, and just wait and see. In the Ephesians passage, which is one of the most beautiful passages about what it means to be a Christian in the entire Bible, Paul begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he's ascribing blessings to him. Blessing, blessed be the name of the Lord, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He said, God already knew this about you. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. The world is founded on Christ. It's founded on God's mercy and love, and it has to be, because it's going to be filled with sinful people. But God knew you before the foundation of the world. He saw across time and space, saw all these things, knew what would be. Why did he choose us, though, that we should be holy and blameless before him? Now, the only way I'm going to be holy and blameless before him is to be covered in the blood of Jesus, whose perfect righteousness is imputed to me. 
But it doesn't mean that I stop there. No, no, no. I pursue holiness and righteousness in my own life. At least that's God's intention. So in, in love, he says he predestined us. He knew in advance and he purposed for us adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he predestined us. In other words, he, he set it in motion that this is what would happen in our lives. We, we would ultimately come to him. Why did he do it? Because it was the purpose of his will, which is inscrutable. We can't know why. And, I, and I've told you this before. One of the things that, that um, Judaism can't stand is, is that very idea that God's will is inscrutable. And so they make great pains to ferret it out. To their credit, they do that very thing because they believe that if I search the Scriptures long enough, I will discern something about the will of God that is not at first apparent. And so they search and search and search, and they compare texts, and then they they work back and forth on teaching to come to a place of agreement. And one of the things that they do is they have to know what it is about Abraham that was sufficient for him to be chosen the way he was, in a way that they don't worry too much about Noah. Um, they, they look at Abraham and say, what is it about Abraham that made God choose him to be the father of the people? And they come up with, well, a fanciful story about him smashing his father's idols, that Terah, his father, was a, was a manufacturer of idols and blah, blah, blah. And so, it, so he already knew something about idol worship being wrong and, in fact, silly, and then he also was the father of monotheism. He was the first one to see that there's only one God. And therefore, that enables almost everything else in the world, all exploration of the world, scientifically, because there are not competing interests at work here. There's only one interest at work. It's God. So he goes on to say, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, the reason that you have been chosen is so that you will praise him and you will worship him and you will add to his glory. And it's what says in the end of Revelation is the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city of God. And here we're seeing exactly that. We add to God's glory. He is glorified in us and through us, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's all grace. He says, it's got nothing to do with you. It's just God's grace. He couldn't have predestined us. He couldn't have foreknown us. He couldn't have chosen us before the foundation of the world if there was some merit in us that caused him to do so. And so it's all grace, he says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He didn't just save you. He gives you wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So remember that everything ultimately will be caught up into Christ. Everything will be united in their confession of him as Lord, some to eternal life, some to eternal condemnation, because they will recognize that fact too late. In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. He's not taking counsel 
with the angels or, or the other, quote, gods from Psalm 82. He, the, those are lesser beings, created beings. He's the only uncreated being. Therefore, he's the only God. Everything else owes its existence to him. So he predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He takes counsel with no one regarding the end of all things and regarding our salvation. He doesn't ask, do you think John's worthy? No. He determines who he's going to save, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So us, people should find in us something glorious about God. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Sealed. Permanently sealed with God's seal, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So three different times in there, the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be those people who give thanks and praise to him who has purposed to save us, and his purpose is sure, and it will be complete. And ultimately, there will be the unity that Zechariah sees that we'll all be brought together in Christ. That is the source of all our unity. It was exactly the same thing he did with Zacchaeus. He brought him into the family, made that family one in himself.